Hey there, and welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jared Lumen, the Soil Health Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association. We're very lucky to have with us today for today's conversation, a pioneer in the regenerative agriculture world, Mr. Gabe Brown. He's not only transformed his North Dakota ranch, but he's helped hundreds, if not thousands of other farmers and ranchers across the country do the same on their operations. Gabe, welcome to the Dirt Rich Podcast. Thank you, Jared. Pleased to be with you today. Yeah, well, we really appreciate your time. I, I'm i really excited to dig into your story and hear a bunch about it. So maybe we just start with that, some of the history of, of your story and how you got into this world of regenerative agriculture. Okay, happy to share that with you. So I'm not from a farm or ranch. I grew up in the city of Bismarck, but as fate would have it. I married a young lady whose parents had a farm and partway through college, they called us and asked if we'd be interested in coming back. So uh, upon graduation from college, uh, we moved onto the ranch here east of Bismarck and we farmed with them for a period of eight years. And then we're fortunate enough to buy part of it from them in 1991. And, and, uh, you know, not being from a farmer ranch, everything is always new and exciting to me. So I always was reading and trying to learn. And I came across no-till and the work that Dr. Dwayne Beck was doing here in the Northern Plains with no-till. And it just made sense to me. And my father-in-law, I tease, was the king of tillage. He loved his tillage. But I knew that that no-till would work in my environment. So the winter of 93, 94, I sold all my tillage equipment, went 100% zero till, and we've been 100% no-till ever since. Well, to make a long story longer, uh, 1995 came along. I had 1,200 acres of spring wheat seeded that year, and the day before I was going to start combining, we lost 100% of it to a hailstorm, and that was pretty devastating. Uh, you know, a banker wasn't too happy because I didn't have hail insurance. Uh, 1996 came along and we lost 100% of our crop to hail again. And I started to uh, diversify a bit that year. I'd planted some peas and I had those peas combined before the hail storm came. And I'm thinking maybe I need to diversify some more. Well, 1997 came along and we dried out. We never combined an acre. And uh, I graze most of those acres. And so we got some livestock on the land because I had a beef cattle herd. You, uh, had, a, you had a herd prior to that already? Yeah, I, I had actually had uh, had uh, started a herd of cattle back in, uh, in 1983 when we moved here and a commercial herd and transitioned into a registered herd. And, and so... The, the cattle were still alive after the hailstorms, luckily. So I was able to make my interest payments to the bank, but not the, not the principal payments. So after 1997, we dried out. I'm like, the banker really wasn't wanting to loan me any more operating money. So I had to figure out how am I going to make this land productive without all those added inputs? Because I simply couldn't borrow enough money, you know, couldn't borrow the money. My wife and I took off farm jobs and, and, you know, in order to pay the bills, although they were at minimum wage and, and uh, we did what we had to do. Uh, well, I also had started during that time, I started seeding some 
fall biannuals, winter triticale and hairy vetch, trying to diversify a little bit. And I had no idea what soil health was about. You know, the, the words weren't even mentioned back then. I was simply trying to produce feed for the livestock, trying to make a living. 1998 came along and, and we lost 80% of our crop to hail. And I tell people that was tough to live through four years of no crop income, but it was absolutely the best thing that could have happened to me. Because think of what the good Lord was doing. I was already no-till, so I had checked off that principle and realized back then nobody was talking about soil health principles, but I was already at minimum disturbance. Because I couldn't borrow money, I wasn't buying and applying a lot of synthetics, whether it be fertilizer or herbicides. And then the hailstorms were putting the crop on the ground, so I was actually getting armor on the soil surface. And I'll never forget there, it was probably about the third year into no-till, I was beginning to see earthworms show up. Well, we never had earthworms before because my father-in-law loved to till so much. So I was noticing these changes, and I was also noticing that water was infiltrating, you know. Because of the diversity I was starting to add, I was getting better soil aggregation. You know, we were taking more carbon out of the atmosphere, pumping it in the soil to feed biology. And so I tell people those four years were simply God taking one of the world's most simplest creatures and teaching him how to farm in nature's image. And I really learned how to do that then. I, I learned that, boy, if I focus on the resource, it's going to be much more productive. And fortunately, since then, you know, in 1998, Jay Fear, who was the district conservationist with NRCS here in Burley County, came and asked me if I would run for a position on the, the SCD board, and I did. And that really propelled me down a path of learning, because for those of you who know Jay, is he's, he's just an a individual who loves to learn and loves to share, and so... I would push him, he'd push me, and he'd bring people out to my ranch. And I met a lot of the right people at the right time that's led to this journey of 25 plus years of learning about what is now known as regenerative agriculture. And it's been a wonderful experience and one that continues to this day. And, and I always tell people, Gabe Brown's not very smart, but I know a lot of smart people. And that really really tells the story. Who do you know? And then what can you learn from them? And what can you apply to your own farm or ranch? That is quite the story. And, and I can imagine I've, I've had some little things that keep me up at night and four years in a row of struggles like that would sure be stressful and enough to turn a lot of people away from farming forever, but you stuck with it. And how, when you were first doing that and making some changes. Like you mentioned, no one was doing this. You were the first one trying some of these things. What was it that caused you to think, okay, maybe I should diversify? Was it purely just a financial thing? You know, obviously this wheat thing isn't working out. Was there, uh, and, and what were some of those just early conversations, people, resources that caused you to think a little bit differently? Because for most people, they would just, they know nothing different, but to do what they've always done. And clearly that wasn't the case with you. Yeah, that's a great question. And realize it goes back to me growing up in the city. Okay, I didn't know any better. So the neighbors were going to laugh at me anyway, no matter what I did. They thought I was a dumb city kid going to go broke. So I wasn't never afraid 
of trying new things. Now, in school, in college, you know, I have degrees in animal science and ag economics. And, you know, I learned that, well, you should plant a legume with the grass to fix nitrogen, and then the grass will help cycle phosphorus for the legume. And so that's why I started planting crops like peas and crops like hairy vetch, along with winter triticale, a legume and a grass. And and the hailstorm that occurred in 98 occurred in late June, which, you know, it set back the crop, but it allowed me time. And I planted cow peas and sedan grass together, legume and a grass. And I literally did not have the money to buy the twine to put that up for hay. So I just turned my cattle into it late fall, and that was livestock integration. But I was doing these things. I was forced financially to do it. But the important thing is I learned from them. You know, some worked out, some didn't work out, but you learn and you go. And as long as you make your failures learning experiences, you will advance and move forward. And then also what occurred after that was meeting the right people. You know. In 2003, Dr. Chris Nichols came to my ranch, and I'll never forget her telling me, Gabe, you've come a long way and your soils are moving in the right direction, but you'll never get to where you want to go as long as you use significant amounts of synthetics. And I asked her, I said, do you really think the soil can cycle enough nutrients? And she said, well, I know it can. So for four years after that, I did split trials, fertility on part of the field at varying amounts and then no fertility on another part. And all four years, the most profitable part of the field is where I did not apply any synthetic fertility. And so that just showed me, man, the soils are healthy enough. I don't need to be buying these synthetic nutrients. And so things like that, they just make good sense. But I encourage all producers to this day to try things on your own farm or ranch, find out whether they work or not, and then move forward from there. You were trying these things all along and learning, and obviously people came along and helped you and stuff. What have you seen? So you kind of talked about the beginning and what you started to see. Where are you today? Yeah, it's, it's amazing the changes. You know, we took organic matter levels on our cropland from le- less than two to well over seven and eight today. Uh, water infiltration rates, uh, Jay Fear did some infiltration tests on my land in 1991. We could only infiltrate a half of an inch of rainfall per hour. Now through the use of dual head fil- infiltrometer, very scientific, we've documented we can infiltrate over 30 inches an hour. So that's a 60 fold increase in infiltration rates. Heck, we've never gotten 30 inches of moisture in any year here in Bismarck, let alone in an hour. But what that tells me is every raindrop that falls on my ranch, unless it falls on the road, is going to infiltrate. And then due to the amount of carbon we have in our soils, it's going to stay there and make me resilient. You know, last year, 2020 was the second driest year ever recorded here at Bismarck. We still grew profitable cash crops. We still ran the same number of livestock. We've always run. It's amazing the resiliency that comes about as a result of healthy soil. Now, one of the things I'm most proud of, though, is 
just financially how much more profitable we are. The, the biodiversity that's on this ranch, we're running 10 times as much livestock as we used to. We're over 10 times more profitable than, than we were years ago. And I'm not counting the hailstorms. Of course, we weren't profitable then. But the enterprises that are on our ranch, uh, it's so much more than I thought it'd be. And I, I'm actually retired from the ranch now. We've turned it over to our son. Uh, my time spent out uh, trying to share the word, so to speak, of regenerative agriculture. But it's going to be really fun to watch him because he has a totally different mindset than when I started. You know, he's never known. He's never tilled anything in his life. So he has no idea what that's like. He's never not manage livestock adaptively. And so he's going to take this ranch much, much further than I ever did. And that's the exciting thing to see. So you kind of got right into the next topic I wanted to talk about, which was the financial side of it. And, and you asked, you, you talked a little bit about the different enterprises you've added, and I want to get into that later. But for I've always kind of thought one of the probably bigger challenges to the soil health movement that a lot of people face or that I've heard from farmers is they'd say, yeah, it'd be great to improve my soil and improve conservation on my land, but you know, I need to be profitable. I need, I'm, I'm running a business here and I need to feed the growing population and feed a world. You know, a lot of these things that people think that they can only do in the way that they're currently doing it, but you've obviously shown that you can do that and be profitable. You can build soil and be profitable together and that they can go hand in hand. They're not contradictory. How have you seen, you know, and, and even beyond just the the direct marketing, the other enterprises you've built just for the straight up commercial farmer. How, how have you been able to improve profits and, and amongst your travels, you've probably seen other examples of it too. Yes, that's a, that's a very good question, Darren. And the, you're right. It's one we get asked all the time. So my business and par partners and I own a, a business called Understanding Ag, which is a for-profit consulting company. Uh, last time we added it up, we're consulting on over 22 million acres across the United States. I'm very proud of the fact that the majority of clients we work with were able to increase profitability year one. Now, not all of them, because it's directly related to their desire as to how many of these principles to adopt, and then how can they, through their observational skills, adapt according to what they see. So the way we do that with most uh, uh, farms is we go in and do we do some baseline soil testing. The first one we do is called a TNE, total nutrient extraction. And this is an eye opener for many farms and ranches. Uh, we're working on a project here in the Northern Plains where a year ago we did TNE tests on 45 different farms. And what that is, it's a soil test. We probed soil one foot deep, okay? And then we'd ask the farmer, okay, what do you think the average pounds of nitrogen are per acre on those 45 farms to a one foot depth? Well, most of them will come back, you know, guessing from 20 to 50 pounds. Well, the average on 45 farms was 9,000 pounds, okay? Yeah. Phosphorus, 2,300 pounds. Potassium, 11,000 pounds. The least amount of nitrogen on any farm 
of the 45 was still 1,200 pounds. So that tells you all 45 of these farms have plenty of nutrients. Farms and ranches today are not short of nutrients, yet what are we doing in production agriculture? We're going applying copious amounts of nutrients, and I don't care if we're talking synthetics or if we're talking organic amendments, manures, compost, et cetera. We're applying copious amounts because the soil tests we're taking today only are showing the inorganic fraction of nutrients. In other words, what's water soluble, what's not attached to a carbon molecule, what's more or less available for the plant the day that sample was taken. That's no way to do soil test. Okay, so we show the farmer immediately, you have plenty of nutrients. Okay, if I have plenty of nutrients, how come my crops don't look good if I don't apply these synthetics? Well, the answer to that is we do a PLFA test, phospholipid fatty acid, which shows the amount of bacteria, protozoa, nematodes, fungal component, predator-prey relationship, and we show them. The reason those nutrients are not available to plants, you don't have enough biology. All farms and ranches are short of biology. You don't have the proper predator-prey relationship to cycle those nutrients. Then the third test we do is the Haney soil test. And the Haney soil test is a biological test that takes into account both the inorganic and organic fraction of nutrients. And then through wetting and drying, they're able to extrapolate how much of that organic fraction of nutrients will be cycled and made available via biology. So by laying that out to them, we can show them, you can start saving money in most cases, not all. They can start saving money immediately because they're over applying nutrients. And one thing, if you over apply nutrients, it's actually detrimental to soil biology because the biology is gonna be very lazy and say, no, I'm just gonna eat those nutrients that were applied. I'm not gonna go looking for them. So in other words, they're not gonna take advantage of the pool that's available in your soil. Now, I just gave you a TNE for a one foot soil depth. Then the question we ask our farmers is, how deep do the roots on your cash crops grow? How deep do they go down? Well, most of them will say two feet, three feet. Well, then think of the amount of nutrients you have. So it's a change of mindset. It's an educational process. So producers think, okay, I, in order for me to go down this regenerative path, it's going to cost me money. No, we're going to save you money in most cases. Now, there's some, some producers out there who are doing a good job and they're already taking advantage of the biology and their soil and the nutrients available. So I don't want to make a blanket statement saying all producers, but the majority of them. And that's how you start guiding producers down this path. The beautiful thing about it, Jared, as you know, uh, once you start down this path, it has positive compounding effects. You use less synthetics, you're going to stimulate biology. The more biology, the more nutrients cycled, more money you put in your pocket, but the more biomass growth you get, more biomass growth you get, the more carbon's taken out of the atmosphere, more biology can be fed. And it's just a beautiful, naturally occurring process that drives the system. And your understanding of the science behind it is way beyond mine. But for the person who hears this and it makes sense, it, it can be scary. And, and I've heard a concern from 
some large scale farms, quite large is that their, their operations are so fine tuned that they almost depend on us. They can, you know, average across all their acres, a, a very consistent yield, very consistent expenses, very consistent inputs, and any tweaking to that could drastically affect their business. So when you work with a large farm who wants to make these changes, but has this business model of very consistent everything and tight margins, how do you work with them to yep. you know, try implementing that for the first time? Or Yep. Another very good question. And what we always say when our consultants work with our clients is we take them where they're at. So it's going to be different if we're working, let's say, for example, a 10,000 acre cash grain farm versus a 100 acre cash grain farm. Wherever you're at, whatever you feel comfortable with, that's where we'll start. We're not going to go in there and expect you, nor would we ask you to change your entire operation. But you start, we lay out just what I told you earlier. We take the proper soil test and then we tell them, okay, let's do test strips. Now, on a 100-acre farm, that might only amount to a couple of acres. But on a 10,000-acre farm, let's take this quarter of land and let's use it as a test strip. Okay, we're going to apply fertility rates based on our soil testing. We're going to apply fertility rates based on your standard practices. And then we're going to do variations thereof. And then we're going to track yield, profitability, okay, and Here's the hard thing for most producers to understand is it's not about yield. It's about profit. I will take profit over yield any day because profit will keep me in business. Yield may not. Another change that occurs, though, over time we're seeing with our client is less reliance on federal programs. Okay, I'm very proud of the fact that my business partners and I, none of us accept any government payments. Now, I don't want to give the illusion that I haven't. I used to. And we actually would encourage farmers where appropriate to take part in those programs if they'll move you down the path. But it's ridiculous, Jared, that there's farmers out there who have their farms and ranches paid for, and they're still taking advantage of those programs. We're never going to change as a society if we keep doing that. So you need to take farmers and ranchers where they're at and then work with them from there. Once they see that, boy, regenerative agriculture, I'm no longer seeing water pond on the fields. I'm seeing an increase in earthworms. I'm having an increase in profitability on those acres, they're going to commit more of their acres to it. So you start smaller, according to your context, and move from there. And so going back to, you know, we, we've talked now about some of the farmers you work with, the larger scale commodity crop farmers, going back to what your son has done in building all these different enterprises and then stacking enterprises and diversifying the operation, that may or may not be for everybody, especially maybe at step one. But Talk about what you have done and your family has done on your ranch and how that's impacted both soil health and profitability. That That's really a, a good question, one we could talk a long time about. Back in uh, 1994, I started planting winter triticale and hairy vetch. And I did it just to get some livestock feed. 
But I soon realized that that was a slam dunk no-brainer on my farm. It just worked. Well, other people saw it and they wanted, hey, where do I get some seed? So I actually started growing that crop for seed. And now I've kind of expanded it. We've got uh, cereal rye, winter triticale, forage winter wheat, hairy vetch, winter barley in that mix. And, and I grow that and then I sell that seed to other producers. That year in and year out has been by far my number one cash crop. Okay. It was my also my first, besides selling bulls, my first real experience about adding value. And it showed me, okay, why do I want to grow spring wheat that may, if uh, in a good year, net me $100 an acre when I can consistently net well over $900 per acre growing this mix? Okay. Now, am I going to seed all my acres to that? No, because I don't have that big a market. Okay, but I do have enough market for several hundred acres every year, and that's what I do. I will never forget the conversation I had. My son, it was back in about 2009, and he was going to NDSU in Fargo, and he called me one evening, and I was combining late, and he says, you know, Dad, you talk about diversity, and we have wide diversity of different cash crops, but you only have beef cattle. He said, I want to have chickens and sheep and pigs. And I thought, oh, boy. But what could I say? It made perfect sense. So when he graduated and moved back to the ranch, he started with 150 laying hens one year. Then the next year, he got some broilers. Then the next year, he got a flock of sheep. And then the next year, it was hogs, you know. And he wanted to direct market the products. He started doing that. And and. That's where his interest and his joy lies. I say all the more power to him, you know, and and the more you stack enterprises on an acre, you know, I I hear this over and over again. And you alluded to it earlier, Jared, when you said, well, we've got to feed the world. Okay, give me a monoculture grain farm that's producing, say, for instance, just corn on an acre of land. And then give a very diverse operation that's not only producing corn, but they're grazing grass-finished beef on cover crops that were interseeded with the corn. They're grazing grass-finished lamb. They have laying hens. They have a honey business, which is going to produce more pounds of nutrient-dense food. It's not even close. So the misnomer out there that we have to be in this high-yield mentality in order to feed the world is totally wrong. And and we're proving that out. We will produce many more calories of nutrient-dense food than will the industrialized farming model. So it kind of goes along with the holistic model, which I'm sure you're familiar with. The, the, the three keys sort of to sustainability is soil and your environment, your natural resources. You've got your financial aspect of your business. You obviously have to be profitable. But the last is kind of the social and the people part of every business that a lot of times gets overlooked. When I hear, and it sounds like you maybe thought of it too, when Paul brought that idea to you of all the different species of all those things, I think, whoa, you know, how are we going to do all this? That's a lot of work. That's a lot of, you know, everything. Um, how how do you on your ranch and how have you seen businesses across the country deal with the social aspect and, and how does the soil health work you're doing kind of align with the social aspect of the the holistic model. You know, that that was my big worry. How are we going to get all the labor done? 
But think of it in this context. And I tell people, they're always amazed at how few people work on our ranch. And I said, it's all the things we don't do that gives us the time to do the things we want to do. For instance, you know, I used to calve in February and March, which in North Dakota shows you how unintelligent I was back then, because that's ridiculous. You know, now we calve in late May and June. There's no work to it at all. It's it's easy to do. They calve on their own. Okay, we lamb in late May and June. The, the, our, our hogs only farrow in April through uh, October, you know, when the weather's nice. And we, we no longer have to uh, use vaccines and run cattle through a chute and all these things that were very time consuming, getting fertilizer, getting fungicides and pesticides. We no longer do any of those because the soil's healthy. One thing it has allowed us to do, though, is to share the experiences of our farm with others. And uh, for 25 years, we ran an internship program. We took in a couple interns over the summer, and that allowed them to experience a diversified, holistically managed operation. And that was a good growing opportunity for them, provided some labor to us. We also have an open door policy on this ranch. Anybody can drive on this ranch at any time and look at anything. And most years, it was a little less this year, past year, obviously, because of COVID, but we'll have over 2,500 visitors come to the ranch. I always tell people, I would much rather somebody come and drive and look at our ranch in person rather than just reading about it because it's gonna be much more impactful and meaningful to them. Whether that person be a fellow farmer rancher or a consumer, the consumers need to feel confident in what we were doing. What way to gain confidence than driving, seeing where your food comes from, driving on the farmer ranch. So I like to think of it as, as an open book and let's let society see what we're doing. Let's be honest and open about it. And I'm not kidding you, you know, we're like any farm or ranch, things happen. Once in a while, an animal dies, okay? That's part of the cycle of life, you know? If they happen to drive on our ranch the day we're butchering chickens, they better be ready for that. You know, that's mm -hmm. what we do. So sure. it, it, it's a sharing and interaction. And and I'm sure there's other social advantages you've experienced just walking among, you know, walking in your pasture, things I'm surrounded by corn and soybean country and I, I really love walking in my pasture and that's not something everybody gets to do and, and to see and yeah. the reduced stress of writing out that input bill every spring, you know, when you're not doing that as much, there's all these other advantages that it can really just be, it, it it's really, it almost seems too good to be true a lot of times that you can improve your lifestyle, you can improve your finances in production and and also reduce your inputs and, and better care for your nature, your natural resources all in once. But it really does seem through your experiences, both on your ranch and what you've seen, that it's possible. It is. And the beauty of it, we're seeing this multiplied over and over again on farms and ranches all over the world. Now, again, like I stated earlier, it doesn't always work out if the, the operator doesn't believe in the principles and understand how to apply them. And a big part of holistic management, regenerative ag is the power of observation. Okay, what is it you, you mentioned, Jared, you like to 
walk through your pastures. Well, if you see a lot of, uh, of a certain species such as common ragweed, what, what's that telling you if all of a sudden you see an outbreak of that in your pasture? Well, a lot of people would want to go get the sprayer and spray it. To me, it's just telling me that it's been dry. There's a lack of potassium available and the ragweed's there to cycle potassium. That's what it's telling me. You need to learn what these, what nature is trying to tell you, and then you need to react accordingly. And I kind of intentionally left it out of my questions here in conversation is that the five soil health principles, which you've obviously alluded to, but I would encourage everyone who's listening, if you haven't already, to go out and buy your book, Dirt to Soil. It's one of the best, if not my favorite book uh, in the ranching regenerative agriculture world. So really well done with that. Um, There's a lot more information on the soil health principles, and, and there's also a whole bunch more stuff you can find with Gabe Brown on YouTube and Google that you're, you're all over the place. But my last question before we start to wrap up is, is I've heard on a few podcasts and maybe it was in your book now, I, I don't recall, but you've talked about your long-term plan for your ranch. And I don't recall if it's 50 years or 200, 200. years or 200, 200 year plan. That's unusual. Uh, that, that, uh, you know, and that's, that's pretty impressive. Can you talk about that and maybe, you know, share a little bit of your crystal ball as to what you see the next 200 years looking like and why, you know, why you made certain choices on your ranch to prepare, uh, for the next, you know, 200 years. Yeah. Thank you for that, Jared. And and my whole goal of talking about a 200 year plan is, is for people to realize that we don't own the land that we farm and operate. Uh, we're only borrowing it from our children and future generations. And so we need to think about that as we're the operators of this land at this point in time. Just because we may think something's best now, that that doesn't, how do we know what it's gonna, what's gonna be best in the future? And so, for instance, on our 200-year plan here on our ranch, we're located actually in the city of Bismarck's jurisdiction. I've got housing developments right up around, coming close to me. I know that it's going to be impractical down the road to farm and ranch in the same way that I am today. So what could it be if I could imagine in the future? Well, it may be a park in the middle of the city in 200 years. I don't know, but what could I do today to make that better? Well, one of the things we've done, we've planted a lot of native fruit trees and things like that, trying to prepare for that point in time. So 20 years down the road, when I'm dead and gone, those trees will be productive and the next generation can take advantage of them. Planting hardwood trees that'll be here 50 to 75 years down the road. Now realize it's about context. I'm in central North Dakota. There's not a lot of trees in central North Dakota, so I have to keep it in context. But we can do those things to prepare to make things better for our children and grandchildren. That's that's a really neat way to think about it and something that I hadn't thought about myself even is you're right in, in your specific situation too, that it may not even be a ranch. And that really challenges you to think about how you're, what you're doing today and how that'll affect the folks enjoying that land or in, in those, in that future. So is there anything I missed something you'd want to share as we wrap up that, that you'd like to talk about? 
Well, you mentioned the five soil health principles, and that's why, although I still hope they buy my book, it's already outdated, <laughs> and we are working on another one. But but it's outdated because we added a sixth soil health principle, and that's the principle of context. And I really think that's not taken into account very often, is we need to farm and ranch in our context. Okay, I'm here in central North Dakota. We're in about 16 18 inches of precipitation a year. You go into central Minnesota, it probably gets close to 30 inches per year. So that's a different context. Mm -hmm. And I tell people, there's a reason bananas don't grow in North Dakota. Okay. I was 300 miles north of Edmonton a year ago, and they were trying to grow soybeans. Soybeans are a warm season crop. They shouldn't be growing, you know, what it, what appears to be close to the Arctic Circle, you know. Let, <laughs> yeah. Let's put it in context. So, yeah, I, I talked about me calving in, in, you know, February in North Dakota. That's out of context. We need to work in our context, farm and ranch in our context. What we do is by doing so, we're going to be able to work with nature instead of against her. And anytime you do that, you will be more profitable. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I look forward to your next book to, to re-update with the new the new, uh, new soil health uh, principle or, or whatever comes from you next. We really appreciate that. Uh, share uh, how people, if they want to learn more about either your business, the Understanding Ag, or, or get in contact with you, how they can do that. Yeah, thank you. So, so we have a business, Understanding Ag. You can just Google Understanding Ag will come up. And we also have a nonprofit called Soil Health Academy, and that's an educational arm. We have a lot of resources on there. Uh, we, we put out free webinars. Anybody is welcome to attend. There's nights we'll get a thousand people on those webinars. We have a, a host of speakers come and help us with that. So please take advantage of all the free educational opportunities out there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Gabe, for your time today and all your wisdom. Thank you, Jared. Pleasure being with you. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture, done well, heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.